So a reading from 1 Corinthians uh, 7, verses 1 to 9. Now for the matters you wrote about, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, uh, but since sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. Do not deprive each other, except perhaps by mutual consent and for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I say this as a concession not as a command. I wish that all of you were as I am, but each of you has your own gift from God. One has this gift, another has that. Now to the unmarried and the widows, I say, it is good for them to stay unmarried, as I do. But if they cannot control themselves, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Back when magazines were a thing, there was a famous magazine called Dolly. And Dolly was known for its advice pages where girls could write in with their questions. Things like, how do I get a boyfriend? Or how do I dump my boyfriend? And of course, questions about sex. The resident Dolly expert would answer the questions and teenagers everywhere would read along, fascinated or disgusted with all the things that people asked about and the answers. Now it went on for years. People had loads of questions about sex. And we've got something similar going on in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. The Corinthians have written in to the residential expert, not Dolly in this case, but to the Apostle Paul with their questions about sex and relationships. And Paul writes back with some answers. Now we'll look at these over the next four weeks, but isn't it good that the Bible has a section like this? because people today still have questions about sex and relationships and Christianity today. When I was Googling this topic, which was a risky uh, activity, sorry, accountability partners, uh, the section of Google, which had down the bottom, people also ask, had things like, can Christians have sex before marriage? Can Christians have sex after marriage? What are God's rules for sex? I think for some people, it can be a big issue to consider uh, before becoming a Christian. Will becoming a Christian ruin my sex life? And then Christians have questions too, like sex is this intense physical and emotional activity. Is it sinful or will it compromise our devotion to Jesus? We need sections of the Bible like this. And we need it especially because our world is seriously confused about sex. We're supposedly more evolved in our sexual attitudes than ever before, that we are sex positive and open-minded, affirming. But at the same time, people's lives are being destroyed by pornography or relational breakdown or, or sexual coercion and violence. Paradoxically, in our hypersexualized world, people are having less sex now than they did 20 years ago. A study I looked at said that more people especially men, were having no sex. And of those people who had sex in the last year, they were having it less frequently. So our world is crying out for wisdom here. So let's have a look at what the Apostle Paul says in reply to the Corinthians' questions about relationships and sex. 
Let's look in verse one and see just how the question comes up. Uh, chapter seven, verse one. Now for the matters you wrote about, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Now it'd be great for you to have the Bible open on your, uh, in front of you there. So, so far in this uh, letter, Paul has been dealing with reports of things going on. Reports, people have told him about leadership disputes and church discipline issues and lawsuits and so on. But now he turns to things they wrote about. And it looks like they've written a letter to him with various questions, not just about sex and relationship, but also uh, about food sacrifice to idols in chapter 8 and spiritual gifts in chapter 12. And we don't have the letter, unfortunately, but, but we can guess what it was about um, based on the answers. So what, what exactly is the question? It's, it's not, how do I get a boyfriend? It sounds like they're saying, given that sex creates so many problems, wouldn't it be better to not have sex at all? Maybe they were saying, like, nobody should ever get married. Like, there's something like that you know, mentioned in 1 Timothy, uh, where Paul talks about false teachers who forbid people to marry. And the Roman Catholic Church goes part of the way in this with the rule that priests can't get married. Or maybe the question is, even if you're married, is it better not to have sex? Maybe you should just be celibate within marriage. Um, you know, they're kind of saying, just shouldn't we forget about it, just be more devoted to Jesus in our marriages? Now, it seems silly, but regular Christians can think this way. Like, sex might be something you do early on in your marriage, but after a while you get it out of your system and, and kind of not bother with it anymore. You can use your time and energy for parenting or, or ministry or, or just getting more sleep. <laughs> so people may not say it with their words, but with their lives, they're saying it very clearly. It is better not to have sex. But Paul says no. And he's got two big points to make in these verses in 1 to 9. Firstly, that married people should have sex. And secondly, even though sex is good, single people should stay single and celibate if they can. Now, we're going to look through those points in some detail, uh, but then actually finish on something more important than sex. Uh, yes, what could that be, you may wonder, but we will see. All right, so let's look at that first point. Married people should have sex. So let's read verses 2 to 5 again. But since sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. Do not deprive each other, except perhaps by mutual consent and for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Right, Paul is quite clear here. Uh, have sex, don't deprive each other, come together. Now, he gives two reasons for this command. Firstly, sex in marriage helps prevent sin. Sexual immorality is occurring. You can see that verse 2. And uh, Satan is busy tempting us with sexual sin. You can see that verse 5. Our self-control is limited. So, and sexual immorality was an issue. It was an issue then, and it's an issue now. Still, here at church, sexual sin is occurring. People are having sex before marriage. People are addicted to pornography. Uh, people are being tempted by adultery. So Paul is saying, don't have sex in those sinful ways. Have sex within marriage. Now, that doesn't sound very romantic, does it? Have sex to prevent sexual immorality? 
But that's okay. The Bible has plenty to say about romantic, passionate, enjoyable sex. Just look at the Song of Songs, and that's spectacular there. Paul knew his Bible. He's read Song of Songs. But his point here is about avoiding sexual immorality. So to the married couples here, when you have sex with your spouse, you are helping them to avoid sexual sin. And you are guarding your own heart against sexual sin. You are pursuing godliness and holiness. As it says in verse 5, you're even keeping Satan out of your marriage. Sex is part of your regular spiritual warfare. And Paul says you can pause briefly, sure, if it's okay with each other, so you can pray, verse 5, showing the importance of prayer, but then come together again. So, look, it's not like a 100% safeguard, but it does help have sex to avoid sexual immorality. That's the first reason. Then the second reason to have sex within marriage is that marriage is, by definition, a sexual relationship. Just look at how he describes the marriage relationship. Uh, There is a marital duty on the part of both the husband and the wife in verse 3. The ESV version has here conjugal rights. Now, this is legal terminology. And then you have the mutual authority of each person over the bodies of their spouse in verse 4. In marriage, your body doesn't belong to you alone now. It belongs to your spouse. Now, that was a radical thing to in a place like Corinth, at least regarding the wife's authority over her husband's body. In Greek or Roman culture, a regular man with a household would, would certainly have authority over his wife's body, quite normal there, but there was no way that he, she could restrict what he could do. In that culture, it was sure it was good and normal for him to have a wife so that he could have an heir and everything going fine there, but he would make use of slaves and concubines to satisfy his daily sexual desires. He would visit prostitutes with his friends for, for entertainment. Uh, there was no way a wife would or could restrict these activities. But here, the Bible is saying that the wife has authority over his body and he is no longer free to do what he wants. Just as his body belongs to Jesus, in chapter 6, verse 19, a man's body belongs to his wife as well, and vice versa. So marriage is a sexual relationship. In fact, it's a covenant. It's a formal binding arrangement that involves sex. That's what you're agreeing to when you get married. Married people, do you remember what you consented to in your wedding? Do you remember the ceremony? Do you remember your vows? Uh, Here at HPC, one of the lines in our regular introduction to the wedding ceremony is this, marriage is a gift from God for the well-being of mankind and for the proper expression of natural instincts and affections with which he has endowed us. That's in the introduction. And then when the bride and groom exchange rings, they say, with this ring I wed you, with my body I serve you. Marriage is a sexual covenant. So that, that means that Paul can even say that to refuse sex is to deprive each other. Can you see that in verse 5? It's actually the word defraud or cheat. It's the same word that is used in chapter 6 in verses 7 and 8 about a legal issue. It's defrauding your spouse to deprive them of sex. So, because of the, therefore, because of the nature of marriage, have sex with your spouse. Now, it's not very romantic, is it? Darling, would you like to fulfill our marital duties tonight? Um, But there you are. That's the second reason for Paul's instructions. And we do need to hear this. So let me ask you a few questions. Um, uh, Married people, look, how is this going for you? 
How's this going? Are you choosing other things over sex with your spouse? Are you choosing Netflix over sex? Are you choosing work over your sex over sex with your spouse? Are you choosing kids' activities instead? Now these things are not bad, but you're crazy if your sexual relationship is dying because of work or activities or entertainment. You need to prioritize regular sex in your marriage. Married people, are, are you using masturbation plus or minus pornography over sex with your spouse? Sometimes if people don't find their spouse as attractive as they used to, or if being romantic is too much effort, or if people have picked up like a pornography habit, they can satisfy their sexual drives in that way rather than uh, through sex in marriage. I was reading Calvin's commentary on these verses and he made this warning. He, he said, uh, Father, he, the apostle, knew how prone everyone is to self-love and devoted to his own gratification. From this it comes that a husband having his desire gratified treats his wife not merely with neglect, but even with disdain. And there are few that do not sometimes feel this disdain of the wives creep in upon them. Now, all this is wrong. Now, if that's, if that's you, uh, you need to repent and change and have sex with your spouse. And one more, um, married people, uh, are you withholding sex from your spouse as punishment? Are you denying them sex because they've done something wrong? Well, that's not right. I think that's wrong according to the Bible. That's not a way to handle a dispute in your marriage. The Bible says, have sex together. Now, of course, uh, this argument of Paul, these, these, these applications, it raises a lot of questions, doesn't it? Like, how often? What if we don't feel like it? What if my husband is a lazy slob? Uh, what if my wife always says no? Now, there are so many questions, and probably a sermon is not the best place for all of them. Uh, they're sensitive things dependent on the couple and the situation. So at this point, I'll just answer three big questions, I think, including a couple of tough ones. But firstly, uh, the first question we might have is, well, how often? How often? And this comes out of our, our natural tendency to want to simplify the Bible down to a set of rules. You know, what is the official HBC teaching on sex regularity within marriage? I read in another commentary a quote from a Jewish rabbi where he had given a rule. He, um, he's, the commentator said, according to Rabbi Eliezer, one's marital duty depended upon one's status or employment. Men of independent means every day, workmen twice a week, ass drivers once a week, camel drivers once a month, and sailors at least once every six months. <laughs> uh, but rules are not going to work here. There's certainly um, 1 Corinthians 7 reads as regularly, um, so what does that mean? Well, look, probably out of love, uh, it'll be more often than one person wants it, but also out of love, perhaps less often than the other person wants it. We'll leave it there. All right, question two is a bit heavier. The qu second question is about sexual abuse. Uh, does this teaching make sexual abuse within marriage okay? Does this mean that men can force their, their wives to have sex as often as they want in whatever way the man wants? If their wife's body belongs to them, is sexual abuse okay? Now, this is not just an academic question. I, this sort of thing does happen in marriages and in Christian marriages. Uh, it, it gets a mention in the podcast, um, The Rise and Fall of Mus Hill. Uh, but the answer is no. And I'll speak quite firmly to men here as to why this is not okay. Firstly, the commands in 1 Corinthians 7 are about giving, uh, about how to give, not to take. Paul calls on us to be giving to us in terms of our bodies. But nothing about using force or manipulation to take. It's about giving. 
Secondly, elsewhere in the Bible, men are commanded to show sacrificial love to their wives, just like Christ loved the church. In Ephesians 5, uh, we are to lay down our lives for our wives. Forcing our wives to have sex is incompatible with sacrificial love. It is a clear disobedience to God's word in Ephesians. It is sin. Thirdly, even if we are deprived of sex for whatever reason, it is better to be deprived than to sin. Look back at chapter 6 and in the second part of verse 7. It says, why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? You are better off being deprived than sinning against your wife and against God. So do not sin in this area. You must not force your wife to have sex. And if your mind has been influenced or corrupted by pornography, you must not impose things from there upon your wife. Now, it may need that you be that you need to confess your sin here, confess to your wife, ask her forgiveness. You might need to confess with a, to a Christian friend and seek wisdom on what to do. But to be perfectly clear, sexual abuse within marriage is sinful, it is wrong, it must not happen. Well, to go to a third question, uh, what can we do if sex is difficult in marriage? Now, this could be for a stack of reasons, uh, different desire levels, physical health issues, mental health issues, even past trauma. And this is really common. If you're not married, you, you might assume that the married couples here have an amazing five-star sex life, seven days a week, perhaps pausing briefly to pray as per the Bible's instructions here, but then back on. Well, that is totally not the case. There is a real variety over time and with different couples. Uh, really, uh, sex in marriage means, at some point, sexual difficulties in marriage. Nearly 100% chance of that for all those reasons. Over the years, I've spoken with couples who find sex really difficult or only have sex a couple of times a year or not at all. Um, Paul says in verse 28 of this chapter, those who marry will face many troubles in this life and I want to spare you this. And sometimes one of these troubles is sexual difficulty. Now, how are we supposed to obey God if this is going on? Well, a few answers here. Um, I hope that you can see why here it's so important that, that if you marry, if you have a choice, if you're going to marry, that you marry a mature Christian. If you're going to enter into a covenantal sexual relationship where you, you basically hand over authority for your body to someone else, well, that other person better be a Christian. They better have the same worldview as you. They better have the same conception of marriage as you. And especially for women, they better be committing to Christ-like sacrificial lay down your life type of love as per Ephesians 5. So please marry a Christian so that when sex problems come, you're on the same page. If you're, if you're dating or engaged to someone who's not a Christian or is, who is an immature Christian, well, today is a good day to call it off. But then uh, secondly, these situations, marital the sexual difficulties, they do require sacrificial love, giving and patience. Now, part of you might be thinking, look, I just want to take what I'm owed. Or you might be thinking, I am not going to give here. But that's a worldly attitude. The Christian married person will be thinking, how can I give? How, how can I serve? How can I love my spouse in the midst of difficulties? Thirdly, these situations require great communication. You've got to be able to have these awkward but gentle conversations with each other where you express how you're feeling. Um, 
know, romantic love and passion, all that, it won't get you through long-term a marriage. You need the communication. And that's why we get all engaged couples here at church to do pre-marriage counseling with one of the pastors or a counselor. And, and there we talk about communication. We give you skills on communication. We even talk about sex and what that would look like in marriage in these sessions. Uh, and then lastly on this one, look, sometimes it doesn't require help from a professional, a GP with experience in sexual health or specialized physiotherapists, um, psychology, counseling. Um, look, sometimes it's not something you can handle by yourselves. But out of conviction that it's important, you might go and get some extra help. So, yeah, look, that's all a bit heavy. And perhaps the single people are thinking, wow, really? Is it worth it? Well, that's a good question. Uh, that's why we need the rest of 1 Corinthians. But also I want to say to the married people here, like I want to encourage you that God is good. And if marriage is tough and, and sexual difficulty is there, look, marriage can get better and, and sex within marriage can get better. Keep trusting in him, keep being godly in the midst of any difficulties. All right, just so to recap, we, here we've got Paul. He's the, uh, giving like the advice column in the magazine. He's answering questions, giving answers about sex and marriage. And now we come to the second point of these verses. And that is that single people should stay single and celibate if they can. I imagine there's questions about singleness from uh, the Corinthians. He's answering that. Just have a look in verse 7 and 8. I wish that all of you were as I am, but each of you has your own gift from God. One has this gift, another has that. Now to the unmarried and the widows, I say, it is good for them to stay unmarried as I do, but if they cannot control themselves, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Well, the New Testament is very positive about singleness. Paul says it is good to stay unmarried. And later in this chapter, he'll go into it more. Now, this is very countercultural in our world. Our world is very against the idea of long-term singleness. It sees being unmarried or being celibate as some kind of disaster. At the Anglican General Synod last week, a single woman, Danny Trewick, said some really wise words, really insightful. She said, I fear that our reluctance to genuinely honour singleness is deeply informed by an underlying and often unspoken suspicion that singleness is an undesirable and even unlivable state. A large part of our reasoning for this is bound up in contemporary attitudes towards sex. To live a potential lifetime without sex, to never experience the joy of sexual union with another person, to expect an unmarried person to resist sexual temptation till their life's end? The world around us sees such prospects as unthinkable, even cruel. And so it also sees the Christian aspiration of a chaste single life as unthinkable, even cruel. Now that's pretty accurate, isn't it? That's how the world looks at singleness. But the Bible teaches the goodness of being unmarried. That's literally what it says. It is good to stay unmarried. Now, we will look at this more in future weeks in chapter 7 and more about why it is good, but we need to affirm this basic thing. It is good. We need to speak positively about singleness. We shouldn't assume that everyone is going to get married. We shouldn't assume even that our kids will get married or that they will get married on our time schedules because singleness is good. But on this particular passage, though, a question worth asking now is, is what is this gift of singleness that Paul mentions in verse 7? Paul says, one has this gift, another has that. What is the gift of singleness? And how do you know if you have it? Well, there's a few ways to look at it. Um, uh, is it a status? 
so that if you're single, well, you have the gift of singleness. And if you're married, you have the gift of marriage. And then you kind of make the best of it as you can. Or is it an ability, kind of like a superpower, so that being single is really easy and you're just on fire for Jesus all the time and you don't have any desire for sex or a spouse? Is that what it is? Well, in terms of figuring out, I think the most helpful thing is there in the passage. Paul says, I wish that all of you were as I am. Now, what does it mean to be like Paul? It can't mean an easy life. That wasn't Paul's experience. As Paul often speaks about the difficulties of his life. I think the gift of singleness means the capacity to serve God cheerfully and abundantly in singleness without falling into sexual sin. I'll say that again. It's, the gift of singleness, I think, means the capacity to serve God cheerfully and abundantly in singleness without falling into sexual sin. Now, it might not be easy, but that was Paul's experience. And some of us have that gift. And it's not a vow. It's not for life. Your desire for marriage might change. Your, your status might change. But while you are single, if you have the gift, that's a great blessing. And I think we see this around church all the time. Um, I thank God for the many single men and women who have the gift of singleness. They are serving God cheerfully and abundantly in singleness without falling into sexual sin. So that's the gift, I think. But what about verse 9? If they cannot control themselves, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Well, I think this is pretty straightforward. If self-control is an issue and you're at high risk of sexual immorality, you should get married. That's okay. So let's just make a few application points on this. Firstly, uh, don't date if you're not willing to get married. I think that's the first one. Dating someone is going to turn up the dial on sexual passion and temptation. Now, there's nothing wrong with that, but the Bible says that you deal with that by getting married. So if you're not planning on getting married within the next year or two, then don't date. That's crazy. So just to make that super clear, if you are dating someone at the moment, but you do not plan on getting married, I think you should break up. Secondly, um, this teaching here, it doesn't mean that you should rush into marriage so you can have sex as soon as possible. Uh, decades of bad marriage is a high price to pay for a few moments of pleasure. Please make a wise decision about marriage. And I think um, you, I have seen people head into marriage too quickly because of sexual passion. Uh, at some areas of church, maybe there's this myth of like, you know, hey, we held hands, my heart rate went up for a little while, I, I guess we better get married. Now, don't sign up for a whole lot of pain. It's better to take your time or break up with your boyfriend or girlfriend if you see potential problems. It should even be okay to postpone or call off your wedding if, uh, with your fiancé if, if you see significant problems ahead. So please don't rush. And thirdly, I just want to say, be really careful about dating websites, Christian or otherwise. Like they can lead to dating and marriage, but there's just a whole stack of issues around starting a relationship this way. And this is what, something you want to speak with your growth group leader about perhaps. Not necessarily wrong, but just we need to be really careful. And fourthly, like what if you are single and you don't think you have the gifts, you don't want to be single, but nobody's asking you out or, or everyone says no when you ask them out? What if you are burning with passion and there are no marriage options? Well, Paul doesn't exactly answer that here. But if you are single and you don't want to be, I think we need to look at what the whole Bible says about being godly when we are in situations we don't want to be in. This is where we look at passages about suffering, um, which I will have on the screen, such as Romans 5 or Psalm 73 or 2 Corinthians 12, um, or also passages about temptation, such as 1 Corinthians 10 and James and the Lord's Prayer in Matthew. You can 
pause the talk here and, and, and jot those ones down. I think they're going to be helpful. In pain and suffering, when we're in situations we do not want to be in, God invites us into deeper dependency on him. God invites us to find our joy in him above all else. Find your joy in Jesus. Now, there's loads more we could say here, but and we'll be spending more time in this in, in Bible studies in future weeks, but trust God's word here. It is good. It is good. And to stay unmarried if you can. Now, that's been a whole lot of unpacking of Paul's uh, sex and relationship advice to the Corinthians. Only nine verses as well. But this is not where I want to finish. There's something more important than sex and marriage, and that is Jesus and his love for us. Remember where all this is coming from in this letter? Remember the reality of where we're living here? Uh, Just glance back at chapter 5, verse 7, where it says, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Now, that's the big reality underlying all of this stuff that we've looked at. See, we deserve death for our sin. We deserve death for our our lusts, our sexual immorality. We deserve death for our unkindness and cruelty to our spouses or even our, our bitterness in singleness or our bitterness in marriage. Our sin is truly awful. And you might even have had sins come up in your mind as you've listened to this talk and read this part of the Bible. We do deserve death judgment and hell. But Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Jesus took upon himself all our sin, all our guilt. He took upon himself the wrath and judgment of God so that we might be spared and forgiven. He took our place. And in chapter 6, verse 11, praise God, it says there that we have now been washed clean of sin. We have been sanctified. We have been justified. That's what Christ has done for us. So if you have not yet grasped hold of Jesus, you have not yet given your life over to him, that's more important than anything that we've looked at today. You need the forgiveness he offers. You need to live with him as your king. Um, And if you are one of Jesus' people already, praise God, then please remember what he has done for us. Remember your salvation and live a life that is transformed by the power of his spirit. Whether you are married or single, whether marriage is great or terrible, whether singleness is great or heartbreaking, live for Jesus. This stuff in chapter 7, it's not about sex tips or life hacks. It's about living for Jesus, our Savior and King. So, Let's confess our sin together. Let's praise God and thank him for what he has done. And let's let's ask for his help uh, to worship him with our whole lives, uh, whether in singleness or marriage. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we confess that we have sinned. We've sinned in these areas of sex, marriage and singleness. We have sinned in ways we are thinking of even now. We have not only sinned against other people, we have sinned against you. We deserve your judgment. But Lord, we thank you that Jesus, our Passover lamb, died for us. We thank you that we're spiritually cleansed, sanctified and justified. All we can do is to pour out our praise 
to you. We praise you that you have had mercy on us. Please help us to live transformed lives by the power of your Holy Spirit. Help us to be godly and pure in our marriages, including sexual intimacy and love. Please give us contentment in marriage and in singleness. Please be generous in your gifting to us in marriage and singleness. And we pray for the people who are particularly struggling with some of the things that have come up in this passage. We pray for healing. We pray for hope. We pray for comfort and friendship. We entrust ourselves and our marriages and our church to you. In Jesus' name, amen.